0: Team, welcome to In the Spotlight, Goodspeed's deep dive into musical theater. I'm one of your hosts, Michael Fling, on the artistic staff here at Goodspeed, and I'm pleased to welcome my amazing colleague, the Nicole Wallace. To my Steve Karnacki, the Goodspeed's resident dramaturg and artistic associate, Annika Chapin. Hi, Annika. Hi, Michael. How you doing? Not too bad. How are you? Good. I have a smile on my face. I just do.
1: Well, you're never fully dressed without a smile.
0: Hey, hey. that's a great transition. That was really I know.
1: <laughs> I know.
0: Annika, with that, do you want to tell us what show is in the spotlight this week?
1: Absolutely. So this week we are putting Annie in the spotlight. It's the musical about the Scrappy Orphan that opened on Broadway in 1977, written by Charles Strauss, Tom Meehan, and Martin Charnin, and which started at our very own beloved Goodspeed Musicals in 1976.
0: It sure did, and we will certainly dive into that portion of its history today. But before we dive into Annie, let's take a moment to recall what actually happens in Annie, because as Annika and I have talked about already off and preparing for this podcast— All the different versions are slightly different, so what actually happens in the musical Annie? We begin at the girls' annex of the New York City Municipal Orphanage, where we meet Annie, who dreams of reuniting with her parents, who left a half-broken silver locket and a note 11 years ago saying they'd be back to pick her up. With a newfound determination, she attempts to sneak away from the orphanage to find them, but is stopped by the domineering and abusive Miss Agatha Hannigan, the caretaker of the orphanage. As punishment, Hannigan forces all the girls out of bed to do some chores, but Annie manages to sneak out and meets a stray dog that she names Sandy and encounters a Hooverville, a Great Depression-era shantytown. The police come and break up the Hooverville and take Annie back to the orphanage, where Grace Farrell, the private secretary to Oliver Warbucks, has come to invite an orphan to spend the Christmas holidays at his mansion. Annie's smarts and charm ensure she is the orphan Grace picks and she heads to the mansion and meets the entire staff as well as the billionaire himself. After learning that Annie has never really seen New York City, Warbucks takes Annie and Grace out on the town where Annie falls in love with the city and Warbucks sees the world through the eyes of a child. Back at the orphanage, Grace informs Miss Hannigan that Warbucks would like to adopt Annie. Enraged by this, Hannigan begins to conspire with her ex-convict brother, Rooster, and his new girlfriend, Lily St. Regis, to take advantage of Annie's cozy new life. But just as Warbucks is about to broach the topic of adoption with Annie, she confesses that all she wants is to be reunited with her parents. And so, Warbucks mobilizes the FBI in a search and offers a $50,000 certified check as a reward for finding Annie's real parents. At the mention of a check, Hannigan, Rooster, and Lily hatch a plan to get that money, Meanwhile, Warbucks has been summoned by President Franklin D. Roosevelt to advise him on curing the economic depression. Annie accompanies him to Washington and inadvertently uplifts his advisors with her optimistic outlook and ultimately inspires them to create the New Deal. On Christmas Eve, after the search turns up no evidence, Warbucks finally tells Annie he'd like to adopt her and she eagerly accepts. Then suddenly, Rooster and Lily, disguised as Ralph and Shirley Mudge, Claim to be Annie's real parents by producing fake documents and a fake locket as proof. They promised to come pick up the check and her Christmas morning. But overnight, the FBI discovers that Annie's true parents, David and Margaret Bennett, passed away a long time ago. With Rooster and Lily's true identities revealed and Hannigan's plot exposed, they are all taken off to prison. Annie is reunited with the girls from the orphanage and introduces them to her new family, Miss Grace Farrell, and daddy, Warbucks. And that brings us to Why, God, Why.
2: Why, God, why today?
0: The segment where we talk about what this show is really about, what's the driving force behind the narrative. And we think the driving force of Annie is found family.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's definitely a show that celebrates finding the people that you love, finding the people who you can surround yourself with, whether or not they're originally related to you. That's really the big takeaway from the show. And I think the secondary one is to open your heart, to open your heart to new people, to open your heart to hope if there isn't much around, to just have the courage to put yourself out there and be a little bit vulnerable because it will yield great things.
0: Totally, and even... In that that way, that concept of family, meaning so many different things, obviously, we have the literal family of uh, Rooster and Hannigan that ultimately doesn't lead to very positive um, results, but then we have this found family of Annie and her fellow orphans, and then Annie with Warbucks and Grace and that community there of these people that were kind of brought together in unlikely circumstances but find familial love within themselves.
1: Yes, certainly. And and it's a really brilliant structure that way because you have obviously Annie is an orphan who's literally looking for her parents. She's has the promise of parents who have left her at the orphanage that will come back for her one day as they have said in the note. So her technical want is to find those people, but what she ends up finding is a family. It's just not the ones that she expected. So... It ends up kind of being a wish fulfilled, but not in the way that the character thought was going to happen in the beginning.
0: And I think the same could be said of Daddy Warbucks, who is also an orphan, we come to discover. And as he sings in the song, Something Was Missing, he doesn't expect to find a child through this and to become a father-like figure to this orphan. He doesn't expect that, which is beautiful.
1: Yeah. And FDR doesn't expect to find... Uh, a solution for the depression in a scrappy orphan that comes to visit him. (laughs) But he does. I mean, that's what I mean by keeping yourself open. There's a lot of examples in the show of people's preconceived notions being not what ultimately yields them the result they're looking for, even though they don't know necessarily it's what they're looking
0: for. So, Annika, take us back to before and tell us more about the origins of Annie.
2: We can never go back to before.
1: Great, yeah. So Annie, the musical, is based on Little Orphan Annie, the comic strip, which began life in 1924, so it was around for a long time before the show, and it was drawn by the cartoonist Harold Gray. One of the things that I love about deep diving into any of these things is you discover that pretty much any piece of history has about four versions of how it came to be. And this is no exception. So Harold Gray uh, wanted to draw this comic strip and the way that he came to little orphan Annie has literally four different stories. The first one is that he wanted to draw little orphan Otto and make it about a boy, but then the people at the syndicate that was going to publish it said, nah, make it about a girl So he changed it to Little Orphan Annie. There's a version where he was gonna make it Little Orphan Otto and he noticed that of the 43 strips that were published at that time, only three were about girls. So he decided himself to make it about a girl so it would stand out. There's a version that he was inspired by a famous poem at the time by the poet James Whitcomb Riley called The Elf Child which was about a character who was named Little Orphan Annie, and so that would have been recognizable as a name. So he decided to make the character a nod to that poem. And then the last version, which blends enough of these things that I think is probably real, is that he had decided that it was going to be little orphan Otto, and a friend of his pointed out that the poem existed and the character existed and it might be a smart idea to to do that so it might be a mix of all four but in any case in 1924 this comic strip started about a scrappy orphan with a mop of red hair and a dog named sandy and a father figure named oliver warbucks who is bald and and very rich and she had a series of adventures that were often solved by herself it was kind of a feminist story because she usually is the one who's saving the day herself and it was a huge hit it was a very popular strip for a long time and actually it ran for a very long time gray drew the comic strip until his death in 1968 then they had some other cartoonists do it to not much success then they just ran his old strips and then they rebooted it with a totally new cartoonist and it was only canceled in 2010 So extremely, extremely long running character and strip. So that was the strip on which it was based. Interestingly enough, one of my favorite facts about this is that Harold Gray himself was very, very politically conservative. And he put some of his politics into the strip, including, and this is so ironic and so hilarious when you think about where the show ended up, he hated FDR. He was very anti-government intervention. And he really, really was opposed to the New Deal and what he saw as sort of government intervention into private business. So when FDR was running for a fourth term, Gray actually killed the character of Daddy Warbucks in the strips because he felt that Warbucks, who was a capitalist, and he made points in the strip to say that Warbucks had made his own money and had no help from anybody and he could do it himself and he didn't need any help and the government messing in his affairs was not welcome he felt that daddy warbucks couldn't exist at the same time as fdr but as soon as fdr died he brought daddy warbucks back from the dead so that was an interesting thing considering the show itself is very pro fdr and pro the new deal so i can only imagine the harold gray is just turning in his grave at where the show ended up but that's the origin of the strip and the show And Martin Charnin was given a book of the Little Orphan Annie comic strips for Christmas somewhere around 1971. And that's what really sparked the idea for him that this could potentially be a musical.
0: So we should be totally transparent about the fact that most of our information about the creation of Annie comes from anecdotal evidence of various sourcing. Um, And the predominant one that we'll be talking about in this episode is Charles Strauss from his memoir, Put on a Happy Face, which is a great read for any musical nerd. I would uh, definitely recommend it. Charles Strauss is a Charles Strauss is a fascinating figure, not only because of his talent, but because of the longevity and variety in his career.
1: Yeah, certainly also shout out to him for writing one of my favorite shows, It's a Bird, It's a Plane, and Superman.
0: Which of course is also based on a comic strip, which Strauss talks a lot about in his memoir, having learned from that experience in approaching Annie. And he says that Hal Prince said, quote, write a children's show that kids can bring their parents to and you may be okay, but write a grown-up show that parents can bring their children to and you've got a hit. So when Martin Charnin invites him and Thomas Meehan to lunch, Strauss is very skeptical as is Thomas Meehan that this can even be a musical. They thought maybe it was a piece for TV, but it was certainly not, you know, that kind of a piece. And Martin Charnin to his credit, everyone credits is the driving force that really made this show happen and believed in this show.
1: So once this creative team was signed on, Thomas Meehan, who at that point was a writer for the New Yorker, dove into the comic strips looking for a plot from the many, 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 many stories that existed from the years of this comic strip. But he found that most of them weren't suitable for a larger musical. They just weren't going into the depth that he wanted and they weren't getting what he needed. So he ended up just borrowing the characters from the strip, Annie, Sandy, Oliver Warbucks, and writing his own story. And obviously the, the comic strip covers several years, so they could really choose when they wanted to set this. But because the national mood at the time was was quite somber, given that it was the era of Nixon and during the Vietnam War, Meehan wanted to set the show during a similarly dark time. Uh, so they set it during the Great Depression because they figured that the show's message of uplift in a dark time would be even more resonant.
0: And they were right to make that bet.
1: Yeah, that was a good call. It was a good call.
0: And also fascinating, too, that in some ways, Hannigan is entirely an invention of the musical.
1: Well, it's a good point about adaptation, too, is that sometimes you face this when you're adapting something that you really can't translate a lot of what's in the original material and you find that you really need other things that don't exist at all. So they took a lot of license, but they managed to take kind of the heart of the original strip and the scrappiness of Annie and the fact that she's solving her own problems a lot of the time and just made that musical theater in a way and, and created these great characters to to populate that world in such a beautiful way. Capturing
0: the spirit of the comics, not the literal plot.
1: Absolutely. The comics, which also movie I- notably-
0: Uh, Which I would say is a great adaptation. Great adaptation, yeah. So they start to do backers auditions, which is a fairly typical part of doing a musical at this point in time. And for those of you who don't know, a backers audition was usually hosted some apartment in New York City uh, where people with money, it was to solicit producers. It was kind of, we've now translated that into a 29-hour reading and into workshops and into various things, that's the modern equivalent, but essentially it was just the writers sitting around a piano kind of sharing the story of the show and playing some of the songs in the hopes to attract money from investors and producers. So one of the people who attended one of these backers auditions was Michael Price, who had just been named the executive director of the Goodspeed Opera House. And he kind of liked the show, but Martin Charnin was very intent on directing the piece. He believed that he was the director. And according to Charles, Charles and Michael disagreed on that. And because of that disagreement, they couldn't end up making a production work at good speed. And Martin actually ended up taking the material and walking to another composer who we don't actually know who that other composer was, though Strauss thinks that it might've been Cy Coleman and kind of an interesting little tidbit in that memoir. So it basically lay dormant for a year, as far as Strauss was concerned, until he got a call from London from Michael Price, who was on vacation with his wife and they were walking their new baby through the park. And Michael kept humming this tune that he couldn't quite figure out where it was from. And his wife looked at him and said, you know what that's from, don't you? From that show you aren't gonna produce. And Michael took that and called Charles Strauss and said, I can't get the song in my head. I think this is such great music. You got to get this together and we got to do this show. So Charles took that information back to Martin Charnin and they got past their creative differences and took the show to Goodspeed where it had its premiere production. So there are lots of stories about its time here at Goodspeed that could be a special podcast in and of itself. But essentially it was a very rocky time. Um, They put the show up in front of audiences. Audiences didn't seem to really be jiving with it in the way that they expected. Um, And then the New York Times came and the Hartford Courant came and really just ripped the show apart. And in an unusual set of circumstances, the authors took those reviews to heart, really, and really attacked the show in a different way. And Charles says that the thing that really lit a fire under them and really got the show going in the right direction was they had originally taken quite a comical view of FDR, And of the New Deal and kind of lampooned it in a similar manner to the original comic strips. And what he realized was that for a certain generation, FDR really stepped up and saved the country. And the New Deal was not just the thing that got us out of the Great Depression, but a new lease on life in many ways. And so to be lampooning that didn't actually jive with where the hearts and minds of audiences were so they really went back into the show we went back into rehearsal spending a lot of their own money because good didn't have any more money to spend on it so one of the people who came to the final weekend of performances was the very successful writer and director mike nichols who looked at the team and said i want to produce this according to charles strauss Referring back to the advice he learned from Hal Prince, Mm -hmm. he thought it was very important that Annie seemed like an adult musical that adults could bring children to. So he made a kind of unprecedented move at the time and suggested that on the poster it say, Mike Nichols presents Annie, as opposed to crediting the authors above the title or any other people who had invested in the show, just say Mike Nichols presents because that will make it seem like an adult show which the creative team was not really happy about and there were a lot of fights about it but ultimately Charles kind of threw his foot down and said I'll take my music with me if we don't do this and pull apart the show and uh, they ultimately made that call which I think in terms of the marketing and the producing angle I I do tend to think that that was a, a good call from Charles
1: yeah absolutely I think that's a really smart call
0: So Mike Nichols took the show to the Kennedy Center, which is an often not discussed part of Annie's journey. Um, But they did do a secondary out-of-town tryout at the Kennedy Center where they continued to fine-tune the show and getting absolute rave reviews, audiences loving it. There's even a funny story about a realtor who took out ads in the paper advertising apartments saying that it was close to the place where Annie was running. (laughs) That's great. That's a great, like, fun little Broadway tidbit story. And one of the most important things about the Kennedy Center run was that there were tons of editorials in Washington newspapers, big national newspapers, about how Annie had caught the mood and the needs of the country um, and helped give some optimism in the post-Watergate world. So it really elevates the show to a national platform that, It might not have seen immediately otherwise. So it comes into New York with a ton of positive buzz and a ton of momentum, not only within theater circles, but national circles as well.
1: There were a lot of changes made at the Goodspeed production and at the subsequent production at the Kennedy Center in D.C. For instance, the spot ultimately filled by Easy Street was originally a song titled That's the Way It Goes, which is the great number for Miss Hannigan, Rooster, and Lily St. Regis. Miss Hannigan's song Little Girls was originally a duet with Annie featuring completely different lyrics and it was called Just Wait. And in what I think is one of the best moves, they replaced the opening number, which was called Apples, with the song Maybe. That was in the show but came at a different point. And that, as we'll talk about later when we dive into the song, made a real difference in terms of letting us know who this character was much sooner and balancing out Annie's toughness and scrappiness so that we really understand what it is she wants and needs.
0: Right, and that, and that change came specifically at the Kennedy Center um, where they were getting a lot of standing ovations and real people loving the show, but it still was clear to them that it was not the right way to start the show. Um, so one of those tough tough changes, but a very good change.
1: Annie opened on Broadway, Pretty soon after the Goodspeed run and very soon after the Kennedy Center run. It opened on Broadway in April of 1977 after opening at Goodspeed only in August of 1976. So a really compressed journey from Goodspeed to Broadway. And the cast included Andrea McArdle, who had played Annie from the Goodspeed run, and Darcy Loudon as Miss Hannigan. And it was a big old hit was nominated for 11 Tonys and won seven, including Best Musical, Best Score, and Best Book. And when the show closed in 1983, it had performed 2,377 performances and set a record at the Alvin Theatre, which is now the Neil Simon Theatre, for the longest-running show at that theatre. As the show ran, replacements to the cast included some notable people, including Sarah Jessica Parker as Annie, and as Miss Hannigan, Lots of people, including June Havoc. And I'm not sure if you know who June Havoc is, but if you've seen Gypsy, you might recognize her as Baby June. She's the real-life Baby June who grew up, and uh, after she leaves with Tulsa in the show, she had a, an actual theatrical career. So she played Miss Hannigan for a bit. And there were several tours that toured America with orphans that included Molly Ringwald and Alyssa Milano. Annie also started the career of another major Broadway force, animal trainer Bill Berloni.
0: Yay! Yay, we love Bill Berloni. Bill
1: Berloni, yay! At the time, he was a 20-year-old apprentice at the Goodspeed, and he was told that he could get his equity card in the show on one condition. He had to find and train a dog to play Sandy. Although he didn't know anything about this, and using an animal on stage as a character had never been done before, Bill adopted a dog from a local pound, trained her to respond to commands on stage, and two stars were born. Sandy who was called Sandy in real life, as well as playing Sandy on stage, never missed a performance in over seven years. And Bill became the Broadway animal trainer, uh, something that's true even today. He is the guy for all animal training on Broadway.
0: All of it. And one of the fascinating things too that he learned doing that original Annie was that you shouldn't actually name the dog the the name it is in the show because then when kids in the audience are like, oh, it's Sandy, then they get distracted. And it's an interesting uh, just... Kind of thing that he learned. And obviously, Annie was adapted into a film that has played many a home VCR over the years, directed by John Houston, the famous film director of movies like The Maltese Falcon. And the original creative team wasn't too happy with this movie. Um, they made a lot of money off of it, but they were not happy with the overall tone that it took. They felt like it it shifted a little too dark for what they had intended with the show. But obviously, that movie has huge fans and has informed generations of theater goers and theater makers and artists with iconic performances from Carol Burnett, Tim Curry and Bernadette Peters. I don't know. I mean, the three of them are three of my absolute favorites. So it's it's hard to it's hard to top that.
1: The movie version at the time was the most expensive movie musical ever made, costing $40 million, including $9.5 million to buy the rights to the original Broadway show. And unfortunately, the movie was not a hit, even though it had a a long life afterwards in people's VCRs and in people's childhood. So that the studio did not make that money back. It was considered a flop.
0: That's fascinating to me. I didn't know that, you know, that because it has had such a life on um, for so many people and informed so many people. It's funny to think that it wasn't wasn't quite the success that we think of it as.
1: Yeah, I know. Right.
0: So in 1999, Rob Marshall turns it into a telefilm that was majorly successful on the wonderful world of Disney, uh, featuring such Broadway greats as Victor Garber, Audra McDonald in a phenomenal performance as Grace, Kathy Bates, uh, who was a wonderful Miss Hannigan, and Alan Cumming as Rooster, with Kristen Chenoweth as Lily St. Regis, both of them fresh off of Tony wins for Cabaret and You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown, respectively. So it was a really fantastic film adaptation featuring a young Lilane, for any young listeners who are familiar with Lizzie McGuire, that would be Miranda, and Sarah Hyland, who I think everyone knows as the oldest daughter on Modern Family. The original creators were a lot happier with this movie, feeling that it was closer in tone and intention to the show they had written. So in terms of Broadway revivals, There was a 1997 revival starring Nell Carter as Miss Hannigan and a 2012 Broadway revival directed by James Lapine that I think is most notable for its addition of accents into the the show with a lot of heavy New York accents for the orphans and people around, which is an interesting color when you listen to that cast recording.
1: Also getting the brilliant Australian performer Anthony Warlow on a Broadway stage, which was a gift to us all. There was also another movie version of Annie made in 2014, but they updated it to be a contemporary take on the classic musical. So Jamie Foxx starred as the Daddy Warbucks figure who doesn't go by Daddy Warbucks anymore. Now he's called Will Stacks, and he's a rich mayoral candidate in New York City. And Cameron Diaz played Hannigan. And as Annie, Covengine Wallace, the star of Beasts of the Southern Wild, stepped in.
0: And of course, one of the most important aspects of Annie's life post-Broadway were the high volume of educational groups performing the show, community theaters, regional theaters. It has become an absolute staple of Christmas slots everywhere.
1: Yeah. uh, Yours truly even played Annie. Shout out to the Long Pond players.
0: (laughs) Still looking for the VHS. I may need to contact your parents.
1: You will never find it, Michael Fling. <laughs>
0: <laughs> a boy can dream.
1: After the success of Annie, there were two attempts at a sequel. The first one was called Annie Two: Miss Hannigan's Revenge, and it was aiming towards Broadway in 1989. Although it opened at the Kennedy Center first, and then they decided after a sort of disastrous reception not to bring it to Broadway. In 1993, they had revamped Annie Two. So technically, there's really only the one attempted sequel in two forms. And called it Annie Warbucks, which had a workshop at the Goodspeed. That one had a few regional productions, but its plans to make it to Broadway fell apart when a major investor pulled out.
0: Also fascinating, since musicals don't often get sequels, but two Charles Strauss shows have sequels that he wrote. uh, Bring Back Birdie, which did not do as well as the original Bye Bye Birdie, and Annie just interesting because that's a rarity but he has two shows that were popular enough that they felt they could have a sequel
1: yeah it's sort of an interesting phenomenon it's such a major force in film and not at all
0: in theater so Anika, take us into the words and tell us more about the song maybe
1: okay at this point stop the podcast and go find the original cast album or you can click onto youtube you can find it there or on spotify and listen to the song all the way through if you'd rather have listened to it once before we dive in we'll play chunks of it but we won't play the whole song so pause here and come on back and join us when you're done so if you're joining us again here we are maybe is the first song in annie it's very close to the top of the show It's right after the overture, and it's our introduction both to Annie and to really this world. We get a little bit of the orphans. We see them sort of scrapping with each other, but that's really it before Annie comes in to comfort Molly, who's the youngest of the orphans, and she's had a bad dream, and Annie comes in, who's clearly sort of the leader of the orphans. We can see even it's a little piece, and this is the song that she sings to comfort Molly. It's a kind of a lullaby. But it's also a very personal song for Annie obviously because it's about Annie's parents but we'll see how it shifts between the the personal and the and the more public. All right. So let's dive in. All right, so there's not a big lead-in into this. Um, just a little bit of melodic sort of reed instruments. We already know the tone of the sh- the song is going to be a little bit bittersweet, a little bit melancholy, and, a little, and a, the scale is very small. You know, it's not a razzmatazz opening number by any means. And then in Annie's melody line, we get a little bit of information about Annie. It's a very simple melody, and it climbs up to the maybe far away to that high big note on on away although i say high big note it's really neither big, very high or very big but in the scale of the song it's it's a very clearly different thing and she's hitting it on maybe far away we can feel how far that is because it's it's bigger and it's a little bit more distant but then on maybe real nearby she's bringing it down the scale back bringing it closer in right we can we can feel her kind of drawing that dream in close to her heart And in this wonderful part, she's imagining obviously what she thinks her parents might be doing at this moment. And it's just the most simple domestic things. He may be pouring her coffee, she may be straightening his tie. Uh, And we get that little, on pouring her coffee, that little kind of like, it's a little playful rhythm there, a little tiny bit of a touch. She's really imagining this, this household. And it's kind of heartbreaking how sweetly small this dream is. She's not saying my parents are a king and a queen in a faraway castle or you know they're spies and they're saving the world. She's imagining them just doing very small everyday things but notably doing things that are caring for each other. They're taking care of each other, which is really what she misses about these people too. It's not that they're fancy, it's not that she's gonna be the best when she gets back with them, that she's gonna be special. All she really wants is to have people care about her, who care about each other, who pour each other coffee, who straighten each other's tie. And we have, again, this repetition of this verse, but it's getting a little bit more populated, Uh, maybe in a house all hidden by a hill. She's really painting a picture there of what this house looks like, although we also know that this is now a little bit more fantastical. After all, Annie is an 11-year-old girl who we know was left in this orphanage as a baby, so... Whether she's ever actually seen a house or a hill is a real question, because probably Miss Hannigan has never taken her farther than what, like a block or two away? So it's a very sort of stereotypical image for her, but one that, that is not necessarily rooted in a reality. And when we hear that she's sitting playing piano, we get that wonderful, playful rhythm again to kind of mirror the idea of someone practicing piano. It's really lovely. We also note in the orchestrations, which are by Philip J. Lang, you have the addition of a little glockenspiel in this part, just hitting these kind of like high notes here and there. It's such a lovely little addition. It just makes it feel a little bit more special, a little bit more populated, a little bit more visual somehow and also a little bit more dreamy. It's it's kind of an interesting little touch there to add in. It's just becoming so we can feel how beautiful this dream is to her.
2: Bet you they're young. Bet you they're smart. Bet they collect things like ashtrays and art.
1: This is so great, of course, this sort of descending melody Very simple, a little bit playful, you know, hopping back and forth between notes. Betcha they're young, betcha they're smart, bet they collect things like ashtrays and art. And this is also, keep in mind, again, she's she's singing this to Molly. She's singing this for the benefit of the other orphans. This is a little bit of a performance as much as it is something personal for her. So in this part, she's kind of saying, betcha, right? This is reminding us that there's people here listening. Betcha they're smart. You bet they collect things like ashtrays and art it's such a great lyric because it's so perfect for those people again they're not fancy what she wants is just a very domestic kind of suburban life that these people are the kind of people who collect ashtrays maybe art no but again nothing too special nothing too out there that should- And now it's getting a little bit more personal for her. She has to confront the fact that these good people that she's imagining who care for each other and who have this nice life for themselves did leave her, that they, wherever they are, whatever their lives are, they're, they've left her here at the orphanage. And she can't quite go throughout this entire song without acknowledging that fact that it's hard to imagine who these good people are that could also have just abandoned her so this is her and we can feel that kind of melancholy and the bittersweetness in this melody and the pain on that note in their one mistake was giving up me she acknowledges that this is a mistake that they made and you can hear that that's that hurts for her to say they they gave me up But of course, Annie is nothing if not optimistic, and in a real way. She's not someone who has to put on this facade. She honestly cares about seeing the good thing side of things, uh, seeing things for the best. And so in this moment, even though she's acknowledged that that the parents have to be good people, despite the fact that that they gave her up and that they did this thing that was unkind and not good, she brings it back around. So they made a mistake in giving me up, but... Maybe now it's time, and maybe when I wake, they'll be here. Maybe this is the time, right? And it's the same melody as before, that same simple melody, but it's such a beautiful resolution and the repetition of maybe at the end of it. You can hear that kind of wistfulness. And now we're going to skip over this instrumental part, which is where the orphans are all saying goodnight to each other. And then we're going to get this sort of it's not a reprise because it's the end of the song, but it is sort of. A little bit of a sort of rhythmic reprise because the action of the song is now over. She has uh, successfully gotten Molly soothed. Molly, who was upset at a bad dream, has now fallen asleep because this is, a, this is a, the perfect lullaby for all of these orphans, right? The dream that your parents are there and they're having a good life and they're just, today is going to be the day that they come back to you. And then after... Annie does that, she sings this part of the song really to herself. This is for herself. This is only for us in the audience. She's not really sharing this with the other orphans in the same way that she was in the beginning of the song. And so we hear again that dream of what they could be doing. Her mother has maybe made her a closet full of clothes. Again, just really gentle, gentle dreams of a kid who really has nothing. The best dream is that her mother cares about her and has made her a closet full of clothes. And we know it's not about the clothes at all. She doesn't care really about the clothes. It's about the fact that her mother would have made them for her, right? We can hear that kind of caring there and her dream of what they're imagining it would be. But then she says, I don't really care what they're doing as long as they're mine. And we hit that big note again, that wistful note, don't really care as long as they're mine. It's so infused with just hope and want. And it's a little bit more vulnerable than we've seen her admit before, right? She doesn't ultimately care about the dream elements of this, about who they are. Maybe they're strict. Maybe they're not caring parents that are really indulgent. Maybe they haven't made her a bunch of stuff. As long as she has them, right? As long as she has parents at all.
2: So maybe now this prayer's the last one of its kind. Won't you please come get your baby?
1: And because she's now acknowledged this, this is a lot more vulnerable too it switches from maybe now is the time that they're going to come back to me but in this version it's maybe now this prayer and that prayer is that big note right with that feeling note maybe now this prayer is the last one of its kind won't you please come get your baby and it just breaks your heart it it's so open for this kid who we already know is kind of tough, is kind of scrappy, is kind of optimistic. She says it's a prayer, this this whole thing, right? It's different from the optimism of the first verse about maybe now it's time and maybe when I wake, they'll be there calling me baby, right? Now she's saying maybe now this prayer is the last one of its kind. It's framed very differently here when she's alone with herself. She knows that it's a prayer and a prayer is something obviously that's a a request, a supplication to to a force that you you don't see and is not... Exactly, the person that's going to come walking through the door the next day. It's something that you do more for yourself out into the world. So we see a little bit that she knows the reality of the situation. As much as for Molly, she's saying, Hey, maybe today is the day that I'm going to wake up and they're going to be there. In private, she knows that this is a prayer that she's making. And then she just straight up asks, she just straight up begs, Won't you please come get your baby? We know that this has been a a wish that she's had for a long, long time, that she's said many, many times, and that she doesn't entirely believe is going to come true. That she doesn't think her parents are necessarily going to be there the next day. She hopes that they will. But she also knows that in reality, it's probably not that likely. And we can also hear that in this melody, right? It's so small and it's so bittersweet as I've said it's not entirely major key it's not entirely minor key it's sort of this kind of sweet heartbreaking place of supplication that it really lets you know who she is and then of course we have this really beautiful and surprising ending The last line of the song is sung by all the orphans. And keep in mind, they're all in their beds. They've all gone to bed at this point. So they're not listening to each other necessarily. I think this is intended to be a private wish from every one of them that they all, even though Annie has this very specific wish because she knows her parents left her there with a note that said that they would come back. So this is in some way based on sort of reality more than the other kids. They all have this same dream. They all just want someone to love them and someone to be a parent to them. And it really just breaks your heart. So we've learned so much about Annie from this song. We know that even though she comes in and she's scrappy and she's tough with Pepper, who's the toughest of the orphans, this is what we call an I want song for her, which is typically at the beginning of a show. It lets you know a little bit more about the character because what we're finding out is no matter what her exterior is like, no matter how scrappy and street smart she is, this is what she really is on the inside. She's someone who is both very empathetic because she's able to comfort Molly. She's the sort of mother figure for this other orphan, even though she doesn't have a mother herself. But also she's, she's vulnerable and she's just a kid. And it's so important for us to know that about her because of what her outside is like, right? So we're, we're given an insight into Annie as a character so early that it's really invaluable because now we know that the story for her it's not about riches. It's not about showing Miss Hannigan that she was right all along and her parents are out there. All she wants is just someone to love her, who, of course, she's going to find in Daddy Warbucks and Grace. But we, we have seen what this squidgy inside part of her is, and it's so heartbreaking that we just love her and we just are on her side right at the top. Now, interestingly enough, this was a song that wasn't always at the very top of the show. When they did the show at the Goodspeed, they had cast a girl as Annie who was very sweet, but didn't have the toughness that they needed in Annie. So it's kind of an interesting thing when you have something like that, where that Annie probably did not need this song here because she was potentially too vulnerable, too open. I don't know. I didn't see her performance. But when you hear her described as being too sweet... This is obviously a song that if you have a girl who registers as very vulnerable and sweet singing the song, it might tip the character too far in that direction. But when they replaced her with Andrea McArdle, who was a lot tougher, had a much tougher exterior, this song obviously was the perfect balance for Andrea McArdle. Because then you do have someone who registers as strong, as independent, as scrappy and and tough but this song is going to give you the insight into her interior so now you can have Annie go out go forth into the world and act as tough as she needs to be while you the in the audience know what her reality is as opposed to someone who's the opposite who seems very vulnerable and sweet then the balance would not be correct so that's just kind of an interesting thing when you have this a song like this and casting in general and character work there are so many things that go into making sure that the balance of the storytelling is correct. Uh, and in this case, they really found the right balance because it just lets you know right off the top that this is a special character, this is a character you care about, and that the show is willing to start out with relatively little razzmatazz. This is not a razzmatazz song. It's kind of slow. It's introspective as these things go. It's small and contained. You are getting this piece early Then, of course, soon you're going to have hard knock life, which is much more of a a kind of rousing musical theater comedy number, which is a great balance, right? Because we've already seen the orphans to be these kids, and then you're going to see them as these kind of scamps. If it was the other way around, it might be a very different balance. So that's maybe.
0: And that brings us to the segment we call, How Do You Solve a Problem Like Maria?
1: How do you solve a problem like Maria?
0: where we discuss things that might not have aged so well or issues that the show runs into.
1: Yeah. I think the major one that Annie probably faces is the accusation that it's saccharine or too sweet or too sunny. And we live in a time in a place where it's not really cool to be too earnest. And this is a show that definitely has a reputation for being very earnest. It has an unapologetically optimistic message. Obviously the big hit song from the show is, All about just believing that the next day will be better. It's about a scrappy orphan. It's it's got a lot of things going for it that I think just push people away without knowing the show.
0: And I think it's important to to think about that as you're approaching productions that you it actually isn't that saccharine. There are lots of um, darker elements that could be explored that don't that wouldn't necessarily overshadow the production, but that would ground it in a certain reality so it doesn't feel like just cotton
1: candy. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think anytime a musical has this reputation, I mean, you know, people will sometimes who don't love musicals will do a kind of jazz hands and just push everything away in the form as a whole. It's not really fair. I mean, a story that is just 100% only saccharine and cheery and isn't rooted in any sort of realness or real emotion is not going to succeed in the way that Annie did. So it really isn't entirely a fair accusation. But the other thing is, you can't argue with the fact that Annie is an unapologetically happy show. I mean, it comes down in a happy place. It does preach a message of opening your heart and believing that tomorrow is going to be better. And its optimism is a fundamental part of its DNA. And you know what? We need shows that are like that. We want shows that are like that. So we talked before about how when this show was first being conceived, it was Vietnam. It was the Nixon era. It was a dark time in America. And when it opened on Broadway, it was still a rough time and people really wanted something that embraced an optimism and a lightheartedness and a, and a hope that things would be better in the same way that famously after 9 11, mama Mia became a huge mega hit because everybody just wanted something light and happy and a balm for a spirit that was a really dark place for a lot of people in America to be. So I do think that it's not a bad thing that Annie is so sunny and so happy and has a message that's so hopeful because people really need hope and people really need joy. And this is a hopeful, joyous show. Yeah,
0: it's rooted in a distinctly American optimism that we as a country often get like pushed aside or kind of lambasted for on the international stage. But it really does have that, no, like together we can do this kind of energy and that, that grit and that determination to look on the bright side. And that's something that the country and audiences were really looking for when it premiered. So to throw that away and say that that's not valid is really a very pessimistic view, I'd say.
1: Yeah. I'd say so, too. And as we said, there is some darkness in the show, too. I mean, we have Hooverville, which is a pretty extraordinary number to have in a show at any time. It's a bunch of people who have really, really suffered and are suffering. And it's a bitter anthem to to a government failure.
0: And we forget about Hooverville because it's frequently cut in adaptations or in kind of the culture text of Annie. People forget those parts of it.
1: And we've talked about this with other shows as well, but sometimes when a show is widely done by schools or by regional productions or by community theaters, as Annie certainly is, a lot of people are exposed to it in just a not great production. So they might be suffering from that. Although I'm sure everybody who saw my stunning Annie in 1993, I think, would feel differently. It was really revelatory. (laughs) Well, that brings us to the second thing about this show that sometimes gets some criticism, which I find kind of a fascinating discussion, which is about the politics of it and whether it's a sort of unapologetically capitalist celebration. There's been some interesting pieces about Annie going from rags to riches, about how the rich people in this show are noble and good-hearted and the poor people are sort of evil and devious. And I think that's kind of an interesting point to make. I mean, obviously this is all rooted in the comic strip, but it's really, it's a surprisingly political musical when you go back and read it. FDR, The New Deal, there's a lot of references to political figures like Hoover that contemporary audiences might not even know. I mean, I remember being a kid and not really understanding what The New Deal was. So it's important, I think, to remember that the show dives into some really interesting political discussions in a way that you might not remember when you're just thinking of the, the Annie plot. But I think it's also not as simple to say that it's, it's a celebration of capitalism because Annie makes it clear several times throughout the show that What she's interested in with Daddy Warbucks is not that he's rich and he can take her to things and buy her coats and and things. It's that she wants a family. She doesn't really care who her parents are. She just wants to be loved by someone much more than she wants to have the trappings of the the Warbucks mansion. She's really not in it for any of that stuff. And that's, that's made clear that it's ultimately about a family finding each other, not about a poor girl being elevated to being rich.
0: Well, and ultimately, too, right, I think it's, you could take the complete opposite point of view and say that Daddy Warbucks is wrapped up in his business, and he's wrapped up in all these money things. And it's not until he encounters a poor orphan, that his heart changes, and that he begins to start to care about other people. And that poor orphan goes to Washington with him and inspires the New Deal. And so in some ways, you could absolutely look at it the complete opposite way and say that it is a critique of that society. So I think, It's interesting. It's an interesting discussion that has evolved around the show.
1: Yeah, absolutely. That's a really good point.
0: And with that, it's time for our favorite things. These are
1: a few of my favorite
2: things.
0: My first one is, um, and I'm going to do my best to not get emotional here, but as I was re-listening and re-reading the show and watching the movie and the movies and all that, um, just because of where we are right now in the world and the pandemic that is so hurt New York. Annie really is a love letter to New York and NYC and all of the amazing aspects of New York City that Annie's never seen. Um, And Daddy Warwick gets to show her really got me emotional. And I really was just like, wow, I love New York. It just is uh, really, really sweet and reminds me how awesome New York is and how sad it is that it's going through this moment.
1: I think that's so beautiful. That's such a beautiful point.
0: And as much as we, as theater people, make fun of three bucks, two bags, one me when we all move to New York, it is like that—that that optimism that we keep talking about, and that hope, and the the dreaming of a big, awesome, amazing life that New York so represents. And when Star To enters, and I also love the history of like Star To Be and that Lori Beachman did it, and then the '96 revival a Sutton Foster. Like the the casting of Star To is a fun thing for me, but. The, the optimism rooted in, I only got three bucks, two bags, and one me, and I'm going to make it. It's just, I, I, it it touches me.
1: Yeah, it's such a great, great number. And I think you're right on about Star to Be, too, because even though she only has that one little moment, she really registers because it's a really clever paralleling of a lot of the themes in the show. It's another form of, of that can-do spirit that infuses the piece, that optimism of, I'm just going to make it and I'm going to make it happen. And it actually brings me to my first favorite thing about the show, which is the scene where Annie is hiding in Miss Hannigan's office and and signaling to Grace that she's the one to pick. Because I, I've always thought that that scene was such an interesting scene because as a kid I remember when I was playing Annie it's such a ballsy thing for her to do it's such a chutzpah moment for Annie.
0: Right after she's gotten in like major trouble too. (laughs) She's
1: gotten in major trouble and this like rich woman has come to the door and Annie is kind of coaching her to to pick her it's so bold and it works I mean if she didn't do that Grace would probably have picked someone totally different and it's what sets Annie on her path and I just always loved that message especially the little girls who are told a lot in culture to kind of be quiet and be nice that sometimes you got to just be bold and you got to be ballsy and you got to get out there and say what you want because it's going to lead to good things for you so I just love that scene
0: yeah, it's super, it's a super fun, cute, cute bit.
1: Yeah. And great for Grace to respond to it too.
0: Right, yeah. It, it establishes their relationship too, that they're on the yep. same page and they're a team. And part of that is also what leads ultimately to Daddy Warbeck's transformation.
1: Yeah, and it also shows you that Grace is someone who, even though she's doing what Annie wants to there, she has a mind of her own and she's, Very capable of choosing what she thinks is best for Daddy Warbucks in that moment rather than what Daddy Warbucks saw, which is a boy, basically. Right. And also providing
0: a direct contrast between Grace and Miss Hannigan, that Miss Hannigan doesn't listen to the little girls and hates them and all this stuff. And here's Grace, this member of the outside world, who's like, oh, I'm going to listen to this kid. She seems great.
1: Yeah, she really kind of respects Annie as a as a person with agency, which right. Hannigan really does not. So it's a great scene. It, it accomplishes a lot and is just such a
0: hoot. And so my second favorite thing about Annie, which is a point we've kind of danced around a lot, but Annie is a gateway musical that has introduced so many people to the magic of musical theater. There are so many people who their first musical they saw was Annie, and that led them to fall in love with musicals. And we often say that you don't get to Sweeney without passing through Annie. There are those some of those titles and some of those shows that create and instill a love of musical theater for audience members. And so I think it's super important in that in that way. And a super empowering show for little girls to watch. You're watching Girls Be Girls. It's now become a cliche almost, but at the time it, it was a big deal to have seven young girls on stage belting their faces off singing about it's a hard knock life. So it is a groundbreaking musical and it has done so much for our industry in the hearts and minds it has reached and impacted.
1: Yeah. And that's a really interesting point, especially when you compare it with the show that sort of is in the same world, but earlier, which is Oliver, which is obviously about a scrappy Dickensian boy orphan. And if you compare those two characters, Annie is a lot scrappier. She's really choosing her own destiny and making things happen herself in a way that Oliver is much more passive.
0: Very passive, a very passive protagonist.
1: Yeah, so it's a really, it's a bold thing for girls, and it's also just a really strong character in that way. She she really has agency, she really makes her own choices in a way that a lot of girl characters don't usually.
0: And that's obviously so inspiring for young girls to watch, and of course they love Annie, they see themselves in Annie, and and I don't think we can discount that.
1: Yeah. And it's not about how pretty she is. It's not about how sweet she is. It's not about how nice she is. You know, it goes back to that scene with Grace too. She's chosen because she's the one who puts herself forward and says, choose me. She's not chosen because she has the sort of trappings of femininity that are traditionally valued in little girls in that way. And that's a really great thing. My second is the song You're Never Fully Dressed Without a Smile. It's the top of the second act. It actually takes place in a radio show. So it's a totally different setting from the rest of the show. And you get some really clever jokes there in those radio show characters that would have, of course, existed in a radio show like that. The masked announcer, the man with the ventriloquist dummy, etc. But You're Never Fully Dressed Without a Smile is so fun, first of all. But it's also a really interesting choice for the creators to have made because... In some ways, it's a similar message to the sun will come out tomorrow because it's saying, hey, no matter who you are, no matter what level you are, you're never fully dressed until you're wearing a smile. So it's basically telling the audience to smile, but it's in a totally different style and a totally different different framework from the other more earnest, similar messages in the rest of the show. So it kind of almost comments on itself a little bit while also giving you the show's message in another format. It's just a really interesting choice of song and a really interesting choice of way to deliver that song. But also it's just the catchiest. And it's also so clever to have them recording this song on this radio show because they're trying to broadcast Annie's search for her parents and then switch to the orphans at the orphanage who are listening and have their own version of this dance number. So you just really get that sense of how connected this world is a little bit, that the even though the radio show and daddy Warbucks and the reach that he has, the power he has is very different from the orphans who obviously have no power in this orphanage. There's something just about entertainment and radio that allowed people to share something like that.
0: So we actually share a favorite thing. So we're saving it for the third favorite thing. So we can both talk about it, which is the relationship between daddy Warbucks and Annie. Um, it really touches me that she melts his heart and that we get to see a softer side of him. And I have to say from a theatrical standpoint, I think it's so powerful that we all call him Daddy Warbucks. We kind of assume that that is his character's name, but it's actually only mentioned in the musical once. And it's at the very end when Annie looks up at him and calls him Daddy Warbucks. And I just think it speaks so well to this relationship that hasn't you know isn't portrayed in this exact same way a father-daughter type relationship that is so well portrayed in this show and I, I I just think it's really heartwarming and lovely and it just it it makes me it makes me smile.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's something really special and it's really beautifully realized. Annie and Daddy Warbucks are kind of a great example of an unlikely duo. You've got this scrappy tough street smart orphan who just wants to find her parents whom she thinks are coming back for her and you've got this guy who's at the top of the world sort of but he's at the top of the world all alone so in many ways they're not looking for each other and yet they are exactly what each other needs even from the first night they meet when warbucks is going to be working all night he thinks annie convinces him to go out and see a movie out on the town and that really opens his eyes to appreciating the wonder that is just all around him all the time that he never really sees because he's too busy and as it goes forward it doesn't really it doesn't really follow a, a traditional trajectory the the question of the story is not is warbucks going to adopt annie that actually happens kind of halfway through the show so once he's sort of enamored of her as a daughter once he loves her as a daughter he's really on board with whatever she needs and when she says what she needs is parents someone who will in essence replace him in her life he has no problem committing himself to that committing all of his power all of his connections to helping her find exactly what she wants even though it's it's going to be the one thing that takes her away from him So that's a really selfless act for him and really just shows how much he has to grow as a character in addition to annie who sticks to her guns, really. She has this wealthy, powerful man who who clearly loves her and whom she clearly loves, who she clearly has bonded with. But she's going to stick to her guns and go for the dream that she's had since she was little, which is finding her parents. And at the ending, when she finds out that her parents are dead, it's really a sad moment. And you can tell that it's really something that's hard for her to process. But at the same time, there's that joy of being able to to take on Warbucks as a real father to her. And it's just a really moving journey to watch them go through both of them. And it makes the ending so meaningful. They've really made a family together. They've really opened their hearts to each other in a way that that is unusual and really special. It's really one of the great father-figure-child relationships in musical theater, I think. And they're not even technically related to each other. So it's really a celebration of a found family and also just opening your heart to the unexpected.
0: Totally. So that brings us to our final segment, why it works. So Annika, why does Annie work?
1: I think at its heart, it's a really simple story. It's a girl who doesn't have a family, finding a family. You have a really great central character who is kind of unique in that she's both really emotionally available to the people who need her, like Sandy the stray dog and Molly the younger orphan who's, still very upset about having lost her mother but also annie's tough and she knows how to get what she wants and she's willing to ask for it so i think she's a really great character and it's just such a such a beautiful build to watch her try to find what she's been missing and then find this other thing which is exactly what she really needs is just satisfying and also we need that message the sun will come out tomorrow we need it always it always comes up whenever the country is challenged whenever there's circumstances that feel dismal and dark like right now in the middle of this pandemic you turn to those songs you turn to that music you really turn to that message that there's something better waiting for us and this show delivers that message so beautifully
0: and ultimately I think it succeeds in delivering that message because of that strength of character and the characters are so well drawn and defined and we understand them so when they do come out with that heart on your sleeve sentiment of this and will come out tomorrow you believe them it doesn't come across as hokey, it comes across as genuine. And that's a real achievement.
1: Yeah, I think so.
0: Well, that wraps up our show. We're so happy you joined us for our exploration of Annie. And we'll see you in two weeks time for Annika. You wanna say what show it is?
1: I do indeed. It's Into the Woods by Stephen Sondheim and James Lapine.
0: Into the Woods, it's time to go. It may be all in vain, I know. And that means it's time for us to leave. We'll see you in two weeks. Bye, everyone.
1: Bye, everyone.
0: This podcast has been a presentation of Goodspeed Musicals produced by the artistic staff and edited by me, Michael Fling. If you enjoyed the show and would like to financially support Goodspeed, please visit www.goodspeed.org. See you next time.